would uh, grab a Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1033. I told some of you I was planning uh, to preach a doctrinal message on grace this morning, uh, but the Lord brought some things together for me in Revelation 10, and I hope they will encourage you. Let's first read from chapter 10, uh, verse 1. We'll do the whole chapter. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, But I heard heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea. And what is in it? That there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea. And on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. We could say that it has been a a bitter month. Uh, You'd think that with the possible downfall of Roe versus Wade, preserving life would be good news for any society. However, many in our nation, including our president, defied that possibility, reminding us how morally dark things are. And then a couple weeks ago at a Buffalo supermarket, a gunman murdered 10 people out of racial hatred. Last Sunday, a report from Guidepost Solutions hit the press, and we learned that leaders within our own cooperation 
of churches abandon integrity and justice for the oppressed. And then another shooting at the Uvalde school this week left 21 people dead and hundreds more reeling in pain and, and fear. These are bitter times. And in bitter times, we need, we need hope. We need some ray of promise to pierce these, these dark clouds. We need a vision of someone in control who's, who's good and who's powerful to guide this world to a better place. And God meets us there in Revelation. God gave this revelation to a church in bitter tribulation. Much of that tribulation includes persecution for spreading the gospel. But it also includes the the broader havoc that Satan unleashes on the earth. If he can't get you by threat of death, Satan will suffocate you with every kind of darkness until you start doubting Jesus. And so the saints, longing for the day when God vanquishes evil, they start asking questions, don't they? How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long before you will judge? In bitter tribulation, they echo some of your own cries. How long, O Lord? Revelation chapter 10 speaks to people in that darkness. And it provides sweet words of assurance in these bitter days. In chapters 8 and 9, we encountered seven angels with seven trumpets. And if you recall, the trumpets are are warnings. We need to remember Jericho where these seven priests with seven trumpets marched around the city seven days, but at the seventh trumpet, God destroyed the rebellious city. Well, in Revelation, seven priest-like angels blow seven trumpets, meaning the rebellious city of man will soon crumble before the kingdom of God. Six angels have sounded their trumpets so far. We expect judgment to fall at the seventh But the seventh angel doesn't sound his trumpet. At least not yet. We get another pause. We saw the same thing in chapter uh, 6 and 7, didn't we? After the the sixth seal, John paused to kind of zoom out and paint a bigger picture as a way of encouraging the church. And we find the same here with the, the sixth trumpet... John pauses, and that pause will make up chapters 10 and 11. John pauses to, again, zoom out, paint a bigger picture for the church. I see three ways that these words should reassure us from chapter 10. One, Jesus reassures the church of His deliverance and dominion. Jesus reassures the church of His deliverance and dominion. John sees a mighty angel, but notice how John describes him, wrapped in a cloud. In chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus comes with the clouds. The angel has a rainbow over his head. 
In chapter 4, verse 3, a rainbow surrounded God's throne. The angel's face is like the sun. In chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus' face is like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. In Exodus, the Lord led His people by pillar of fire. Now, given these similarities, some would say that what John is seeing here is, again, the exalted Christ. For several reasons, though, I take a different approach. In Revelation, the two other places that John sees a mighty angel, an angel is clearly in view. Uh, The first time was the mighty angel of chapter 5, verse 2. He's the one who asked John who is worthy to open the scroll. The next one is in chapter 18, verse 21, where a mighty angel, again, illustrates the downfall of, of Babylon, the great. And from those two clearer texts, I think John is using mighty angel the, the same way here. Also, when we studied the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, we noted from imagery in Daniel 10 that some angels reflect aspects of Christ's own glorious warrior-like appearance. Some of these angels reflect Jesus' glory so much, it leads people to worship that angel. That's what John does to the mighty angel in chapter 19, verse 10. And the angel says, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. Worship God. Something else is that Revelation 10 follows what John told us to expect in chapter 1, verse 1. If you want to turn back to chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God. And so John has told us in chapter 1, verse 1, that his revelation came from God to Jesus to an angel to John to the church. Okay? What have we seen unfolding throughout the book? Chapter 4 is the scene where God sits holding the sealed scroll. In chapter 5, Jesus receives that scroll from the Father. Then in chapter 6 through 8, one by one, Jesus breaks those seals to open the scroll. And now in chapter 10, we find a mighty angel descending from heaven with what? an opened scroll in his hand. And that same angel then gives it to John that he may eat it and then speak it to the church. So John has told us what's going to happen in his book, and we're seeing that happen right here in chapter 10 with this mighty angel. So I think we're looking at an angel, the angel of Jesus, who delivers the revelation. 
he reflects aspects of Jesus' own glory. He comes wrapped in cloud with legs like pillars of fire because he has a message from the Lord who delivered his people by cloud and pillar of fire. Recall chapter 7. In chapter 7, John characterizes the church as a people who are passing through a wilderness, a, a wilderness of tribulation. And here, Jesus sends them an angel whose glory reminds them of God's deliverance in the wilderness. In Exodus fourteen nineteen, the Lord sent His angel to fight for Israel against Pharaoh's Armies. Numbers 20, verse 16, speaks of the Lord hearing the people's cries and sending His angel to bring them out of Egypt. Isaiah 63, 9 says that the angel of the Lord's presence delivered Israel. So also here, Jesus sends His mighty angel from the Lord's presence to remind us of the Lord's ability to deliver. Jesus as we've seen, is bringing a greater exodus. We've already seen the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, right? The ultimate Passover lamb in Jesus that gets them out of slavery. It's Jesus who was that sacrifice. By His blood, God rescues His people from slavery. And now, just like the exodus, He sends this warrior-like angel to help them into the promised land. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 7 even compares Jesus' angels to flames of fire and He sends them out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So this angel reflects Jesus' deliverance. He also reflects Jesus' dominion. Notice in verse 2 how the angel plants his foot, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. To have something beneath your feet means you have dominion over it. And that's important because later in John's vision, guess who wreaks havoc on the earth and the sea? It's the dragon, Satan, the devil. He is cast, in chapter 12, he's cast out of heaven to the earth, And a voice says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And then what does the devil do? In chapter 12, we find him standing on the sand of the sea with a beast rising from the sea and another beast rising from the land and both work together to destroy the church. Before we get there, in chapter 12 though, God gives the church a vision of Jesus' angel. Satan will do what he does, and he will wreak havoc while he can. But this is communicating to the church that Jesus has dominion, and nothing will change that. His mighty angel reflects Jesus' dominion over land and sea. If his angel is this glorious, think of how much glory Jesus has. Jesus made him. 
In the same way the Lord fought for Israel at the Red Sea, Jesus will fight for His people. In the same way the Lord delivered Israel from their enemies, Jesus will deliver us from our enemies. And He will secure our place in the promised land. And so in this this angel, he's described with many images from the Old Testament to remind us of the Lord's ability to deliver and the Lord's dominion over everything. Including all the things that within John's vision will eventually rise out of earth and sea. Two. Jesus reassures us that God's saving purpose will prevail. Jesus reassures us that God's saving purpose will prevail. In verse 3, the angel calls out with a loud voice, and in response you get these seven thunders sounding, and John nearly writes down what they say, but for reasons we're never told, the Lord has John seal them up and not write them down. Many have attempted to explain what these seven thunders are. The best attempt I've seen is to view them as the next series of seven judgments that gets revoked. Okay, so we've seen seven seals that affect a quarter of the earth, and then seven trumpets that affect a third of the earth, and you're expecting the next series of seven judgments to affect half of the earth. God doesn't let it happen. Instead, he revokes that and chooses no further delay, judgment's coming. So that's the best explanation. And at the end of the day, John doesn't tell us much, does he? Because God tells him to shut it up. Don't write it down. So the time for judgment has come. The Lord has John seal it up, seal up the seven thunders. Now, Daniel has a similar experience uh, in Daniel chapter 12. We won't get into it much today, but if you want to read Daniel 12, uh, he, has a, he sees an angel similar to this one um, and who raises his hand and swears uh, by the God of heaven, etc. But uh, Daniel has a similar experience to John here. And in Daniel 12, verse 4, the prophet sees a vision, but the Lord tells him also to seal up the book. And that's what happens to John. But a couple differences stand out. John can't even write what the seven thunders said. Uh, But when he does write, those words not only further explain Daniel's visions, they bring Daniel's prophecies to their intended goal. Okay, whereas Daniel's vision is sealed up, he's told to seal up the vision... uh, of at the time of the end, John actually sees an unsealed scroll. So Daniel's told to seal it up. John sees an unsealed scroll that reveals the end. And that's important because when Daniel gets his vision in, chapter, in Daniel 12, he hears what God's people are going to suffer. They're going to suffer greatly. They're going to be shattered by the enemy for a time... But he doesn't get to see how the end will come in Daniel 12. John does. John does. 
God opens that ending to John in the scroll, and it's meant to encourage those who are suffering tribulation. Notice in verse 7, he tells us what the open scroll reveals. It says, There would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So no more delay, the mystery of God fulfilled. Since John has a similar experience to Daniel, we, he stands in this line of God's authorized prophets. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, uh, and so on. John is one of them. But even more, his vision of the opened scroll shows how all of their prophecies are coming true. Those prophets announced God's plan to save His people and judge His enemies and create a new heaven and a new earth. And John's prophecy shows how all of those prophecies are coming true. So this lines up with other places in the New Testament that speak of God's mystery now being, now being revealed in, in Jesus. The person and work of Jesus have set in motion a new age Uh, where all of God's promises are coming true. Jesus' revelation to John does the same thing, only it takes us to the very end. The Lord's final return guarantees that all the mystery of God will reach its climax. His purpose cannot fail. Everything God spoke through the prophets is going to come true. How do we know that? Because look at who He is in verse 6. He's the one who lives forever and ever. So he preceded all earthly rulers, and he's going to outlast all earthly rulers. He also created heaven and what is in it. He created the earth and what is in it. And he created the sea and what is in it. In other words, Nothing from heaven or land or sea can thwart his purpose. He holds it in being. He already owns it all and sustains it all. He controls it all. And he will see to it that all things work to fulfill his good purpose, including the end of all evil. More than that, remember that this creator of all things, the one that we saw seated on the throne in chapter 4, that creator has already started the final triumph through the lamb who was slain in chapter 5. Jesus was slain, and through that death, he already conquered. So Jesus already conquered, and now he's coming to finish God's purpose in restoring all things at the last trumpet blast. Number three, Jesus reassures us of sweet hope in bitter times. Jesus reassures us of sweet hope in bitter times. Verses 8 to 11, John has an experience like that of Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 Ezekiel also sees a scroll, and it's like the scroll that John sees in Revelation 5.1. It has writing on the front and the back. It contains words of, of lamentation, mourning, and woe. It's a message of judgment. 
And the Lord then tells Ezekiel, He says, Eat this scroll, Ezekiel, and go speak to the house of Israel. Feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it, Ezekiel says, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So eating the scroll illustrates God preparing Ezekiel to prophesy his word of judgment. Eating God's word is also not what rebellious Israel was doing. Right? You ever been feeding the kid broccoli and it's just the spoon's just hitting the mouth? Mmm, mmm, come on, eat your broccoli, right? It's good for you and he doesn't want it. Stubbornly resisting. That's what Israel's been doing. God's been speaking his word. They've been resisting. He says, don't be like them. No, you eat my word, Ezekiel. And you take it in. So Ezekiel takes it in fully. God's word is sweet in his mouth. And it affects his whole self. At the same time, speaking God's word of judgment meant Ezekiel would face bitter times. Because lamentation, mourning, and woe isn't very popular. So the same happens to John. Like Ezekiel, God prepares John to prophesy. Like Ezekiel, John eats the scroll of God's word. Like Ezekiel, God's word for John is sweet as honey in his mouth. And then like Ezekiel, John has this bitterness that is a result now, people go different ways on, on what this bitterness includes. Part of it includes this, this message of lamentation, mourning, and woe that Ezekiel had. And uh, John also is speaking of severe judgments, isn't he? But another clue of what this bitterness entails uh, is verse 11. It says, John must prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, we've seen this kind of list before... Uh, the new addition here is kings. Kings. And these kings, the next time they show up, are in, if you want to write these down, are in chapter 16, verse 12, are in chapter 17, verse 2, and chapter 18, verse 9. Plural, kings. Chapter 16, verse 12. Revelation chapter 17, verse 2, and chapter 18, verse 9. Basically, here's the picture. These kings are in cahoots with the dragon and the beast. And they influence nations to hate God and to persecute God's people. Which is what chapter 11 goes on to explain. We'll get to this next time. For now, I'll just say that, that the beast and his kingdom murder God's witnesses in chapter 11, and the nations love it. They rejoice over it. God's prophets have been killed. Hallelujah is what the nations are saying. Because they didn't like their message. Okay, So, 
Part of the reason here is not just this word of judgment, but because when you bring that word of judgment to the nations, they don't like it, they kill you. And John is seeing this in his vision, and it makes his stomach churn with bitterness. So part of John's vision that turns his stomach bitter is the persecution that the church must endure. God's plan includes the suffering of His people in the advance of Jesus' testimony. For a time, the church will suffer in their mission. Nations will trample on the church for speaking God's Word. Kings and peoples will follow the darkness as the dragon spreads his lies. And yet, at the same time here, we see that there's hope. For those who belong to Jesus, the Lord's Word is sweet as honey. Right? God's vision for the church includes suffering, but it also includes the church triumphant over evildoers. It includes the church nourished by God as they go through the wilderness of tribulation. It includes the church rescued into a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more evil. And so these promises are also sweet for John to indulge. Now with that vision before us, let me tease out a few, a few implications here. One, if you're not a Christ follower, repent before the seventh trumpet blows. Repent before the seventh trumpet blows. In verse 7, God promises to fulfill His mystery at the sound of the seventh trumpet. And, you, and if you read the end of chapter 11, which is where we get the seventh trumpet, you learn what the seventh trumpet means. That Jesus will reign forever. That His kingdom is going to come and it's going to replace all other rebel kingdoms. And God is going to judge the nations and God will destroy those who destroy the earth. And that's coming, and you're running out of time. That's the message of Revelation. You live here. See if we can get a picture that I drew for you a while back. You live here. The return of Jesus is coming. The seals have been broken. The trumpets are sounding. The seventh obviously hasn't come yet. But that's where you live, and God's message to you is repent and put your faith in Jesus. He has warned you in these trumpets that the city of man is about to crumble before the kingdom of God. Your only hope to escape judgment is to put your trust in the Lamb who was slain. Without Jesus, you're an enemy of God. But please hear this, what we, what we read earlier in the service, that while we were still enemies... Christ died for us. He died to take away your sins. He died to take away your punishment. He died so that you could be on the receiving end of the Lord's glorious promises. So leave your sinful ways and return to the Lord who's rich in mercy. Another takeaway. If you belong to Christ already... Keep declaring and submitting to Jesus as Lord. Keep declaring and submitting to Jesus as Lord. I want you to think for a minute of how John's vision would have been received in a culture where Caesar declared himself Lord. Here's an image on the screen. 
All right? Here we go. Look familiar to what we talked about today? It's a first century relief from Aphrodisius in Asia Minor, and it pictures the emperor Claudius taking a stance much like the angel of Revelation 10. Listen to what Craig Coaster observes. You look at the screen and listen, because he's going to talk about it. Encircling his head is a billow of cloth similar to the rainbow around the angel's head in Revelation. At the emperor's right foot is a figure personifying the land, and the fruitful nature of imperial dominion is shown by the cornucopia in the emperor's right hand. At his left foot is a figure personifying the sea, and he shows his providential care over the oceans by grasping the steering oar that the figure extends to him. The sculpture portrays land and sea at the emperor's feet in order to show the world flourishing under imperial rule. Now let's pretend you go grocery shopping as a Christian at places with this kind of image. And you work with people who worship this emperor. And your whole business or is functions around submitting to this emperor. And then imagine John writing this book and sending it all over the empire to say, hey, that guy's not truly in charge. Jesus is. And then you receive this book in Sunday school one morning and start talking about this Lord Jesus at work. You start telling people, Land and sea belong to Jesus, not Caesar. The earth is going to flourish truly under Jesus' rule, not Romans' rule. Now, you could probably see why a prophecy like this would lead to persecution. All the emperor has to do is snap his fingers off with your head. Brothers and sisters, the times have changed, but the human heart has not. In various ways, our own culture attempts to assert its own lordship. Leaders pretend that the earth will finally flourish under their political party. Leaders pretend to usher in a utopia under their policies and plans for the planet. People pretend that they can make themselves into whatever they want. They have lordship over their own bodies. Let this passage revive your confidence in the face of that culture that Jesus is Lord. Uphold Jesus' standards because He is Lord. Obey Jesus' truth at all costs, because He is Lord. Submit to Jesus' revelation. There is no other Lord besides Jesus. And then finally, when the persecution comes, take courage that God's saving purpose will prevail. 
God's saving purpose will prevail. That's another implication here to, to take courage. Look at the end of verse 6. I'm going to connect two things for you. The ESV has, there would be no more delay. There would be no more delay. Word for word from the Greek, time, no longer, there will be. Time. Now, I mention that because the previous place this word appears is Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, where God tells the martyrs to rest a little longer. To rest, literally, for a little time. And so there's a connection here that John wants us to make. God's word of assurance in chapter 10, verse 6 is tailored specifically for the people in chapter 6 who are crying out, How long, O Lord? And he says, Rest a little time. And then in chapter 10, Here's your assurance. That time's not going to last forever. It's going to be short. There won't be any more delay. The end is coming for you. Chapter 10 is another answer to their cry. How long, O Lord? And his answer is, the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled for you. Now, that doesn't mean no more delay. You know, the moment John is writing this book, it means no more delay within the way things are playing out in his vision. It's another way of saying to them, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. The seventh trumpet is going to blow. Your enemies are going to be judged. I will finish all my good purpose for you. You will pass through bitter times. You will cry how long. You will wait for a little while. But that bitterness and that crying and that waiting have an end. God's saving purpose will prevail. Now, I've used this before, but I'm just worth repeating again. I love this illustration in this analogy in Andrew Peterson's Wing Feather Saga. There's this character named Armulin the Bard, and in the middle of a dark moment, someone brings him uh, a message, a, a ray of hope. And, uh, and he says, something... He says, sometimes in the middle of the night, the sun can seem like it was only ever a dream. We need something to remind us that it still exists, even if we can't see it. We need something beautiful hanging in the dark sky to remind us there is such a thing as daylight. Sometimes this bitter darkness causes us to doubt whether the light still exists. But the book of Revelation is like a moon hanging in the dark sky. And for us who sit in that darkness, it shines forth as a ray of hope. It gives us heaven's perspective on what's real and ultimate. It reminds us the sun's going to rise again. 
and the bitter nights will end. And the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus has all dominion. Jesus is mighty to deliver. Jesus is in control. The Lord rules heaven, earth, sea, and all that is in them. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. All his promises for a new heaven and a new earth will come true. This isn't a guess on how the world is going to end. It is a guarantee. The one who spoke it is going to make the world go where he spoke it. Where he planned for it to go. Therefore, courage, dear heart. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. To close, I'd I'd just like to read a few promises from the prophets that God is saying are going to happen for us. I want to read them over you. And I just want you to hear them again in light of the assurance that we receive that the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled So in Christ, I want you to hear your future, beloved. In this bitter time, hear these sweet words again. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. And water the valley of Shittim. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. And they shall come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. On Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts will prepare for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever, and the, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God.
You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Those are some good promises. And God has guaranteed them for us. Let's pray. Father, the times are indeed uh, bitter and and the weeks sometimes go by where we think this night will never end. But we thank you for uh, we thank you for the book of Revelation. We thank you for how it lifts, lifts us up. It pulls back the curtain that we may see what's real and what's ultimate. And uh, I thank you for this guarantee that, that the mystery of God will be fulfilled. We thank you that, that we have this hope. Uh, until, until then, until that seventh trumpet blows, make us faithful, keep us going, keep our sights set on Jesus. He is our hope for perseverance. Amen.